What do you think? If a scientist has 99 caterpillars, does she not leave the 98 on the lab bench and go and search for the one that went astray? And if she finds it, she rejoices over it more than over the 98 that never left a tray. Matthew 8, 12 through 13, the New Rachel Translation. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. And I'm Anthony in serious conversation today, we are going to be talking with Pastor Rachel Sorson about how monarch butterflies can lead to theological revelations. Also, we'll be discussing understanding communion and hot knot or sanctified with the issue of forgiveness. But first, we're going to have fun with unholiness today. And that is the name of this podcast. And you might notice that it has a very similar connection with the Church of the Nazarene magazine, Holiness Today. We've really been catching our footing as a podcast lately, and a lot of people who do talk with us about the podcast, and if you have thoughts, questions, or comments, please send them to us. They really like when we open up with the funny news. It allows things to break the ice, and also they like the serious, deep conversations that we have. So in the beginning of our program, as we look at funny things in our world that are unusual, we realize we need a name for this segment, (laughs) and we have decided to go with unholiness today. And of course, this is a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. So how we're going to be doing this probably from here on out is I'll be presenting some funny, weird, and just outright strange things. And then Amanda, because we are not total depravity people, though you might think that the world is filled with total depravity, we do want to move people towards sanctification. Amanda is going to give us a holiness lesson and what the takeaway are from some of these articles and events in our modern world. So the first thing that we have going on recently I know a lot of people, they like to watch birds and things of this nature. There are people, they put up their hummingbird feeders. People love this. And for those in Arizona, they found a very special bird. They happened to find a pigeon. And you might say, well, that's not very strange, preacher. People find pigeons all the time. Why is this one special? Well, this one happened to be wearing some clothes. In fact, it was wearing a flight suit that was bedazzled with all sorts of little gems. And obviously, this pigeon did not come by this by (laughs) happenstance. Now, what was so unusual about this is in Arizona, after they immediately found this pigeon, and we've got some pictures for it, you can see there, they photographed it. You see, he's got a nice photo shoot there. (laughs) Some glam shots. Yeah, he's got the glam shots going on. But what was the weirdest thing of all is the Arizona residents immediately nominated the pigeon for political office, um, running on the platform of, you have a right to fashionable flight. Now, there were people who were a little bit worried about this. They said, is a pigeon really qualified for political office? And the pigeon is responded, and we have his quote on the record. He said, who needs qualifications when you have dazzle? (laughs) Amanda, what is the holiness lesson from this? Okay. Um, uh, This is not the first time, actually, in our country where where animals have been elected. There's a, a dog and I think a cat that have been mayor for several years in different towns throughout the U.S., but this one's particularly fascinating with the fact that he is elected because of his uh, bedazzled suit, and we do see this a lot. Um, A lot of people want to go towards leaders that are appealing um, to their eyes and to their ears, and so they chase after them, and of course, Kingdom of the Logos, we have uh, greatly emphasized, one, that salvation does not come from the government, and two, you should never try to qualify your leaders by... um, how they make you feel good. (laughs) Yes, that is absolutely true, and plus, another thing, You can't tell the difference between satire and reality anymore. This one actually is satire. They did find the pigeon in the bedazzled suit. But some of these other things, send us your thoughts. Are we giving you satire or is this real? Is this real? Is this real or not? 
So moving on to our next topic, we live in the modern world and we have modern ways of researching things and even difficult things to research like crime. There's a lot of variables involved in it. And even myself, when I was doing graduate school and studying things like criminology, there's always people trying to figure out what actually makes people become criminals. What makes people antisocial for life? Is it that they just have something wrong with them neurologically? Is there a life circumstance? And they've always done tests throughout human, um, well, the last 20th century with a variety of people all across the human spectrum where they say, if you give someone the opportunity to steal $1,200 or $1,600, where is the line where people will actually become criminal? Well, recently we've actually got an answer to this. Evidently, it only takes 20 bags of shrimp for someone <laughs> to indulge in criminal activity. Recently, there was a man who stole 20 bags of shrimp ranking in at $440 in value. Now, this has been quite a problem for the, the police where this local theft took place. They've been putting out things. If anyone knows any details about a man stealing this much shrimp, please let the authorities know. Um, on an unrelated note, police in the area, they keep looking at things that they think are drug busts. They keep busting these people who they think are, are trading in drugs, and then they get there and it's just shrimp. They, they're just... <laughs> selling things in shrimp. Amanda, I know in the past we talked about the black market for portageons, which was going on in Germany and the Netherlands. What is the holiness takeaway from this? It seems total depravity if people are stealing shrimp. What's the takeaway? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Uh, yes, um, I guess uh, creativity will... Well, the people will figure out ways to, to get what they want, but I, I don't know what you're going to do with, with 20 bags or almost $500 worth of shrimp. Um, Anthony? <laughs> I will tell you this much. Cash isn't always king, especially on the black market. Clearly, it's shrimp these days. <laughs> well, I guess they say that, you know, with terms of currency, they always are saying, well, if you can do away with large bills, people won't be able to do crime. It, ludicrous. People are going to find things to do crime with. But what if you were actually using shrimp as a new currency? Yeah, we, Would it work? I don't think so. I, th I think nah, you have I to get the cat population <laughs> under control first. Yeah, and there'd be refrigeration issues. Uh, scratch that one. We'll put that one off. Shrimp is not <laughs> going to make a new currency. Anyways, moving on to the next things that are unholy in our world. There are many people out there who are finding the unholy living to be a, a regular lifestyle, but we all should move towards sanctification for we all have sinned. Next up, we have some criminals in Georgia, though I guess only one person kind of was a criminal at the start of this. There was a man who was an inmate in a Georgia jail, and he wanted out of jail. I mean, this is something we could expect, and he calls his mom, and he says, could you break me out of jail? And she does this. She comes to visit him. They're having visitation hours, and she somehow manages to open a side door at the local jail, and they escape together. But a few moments later, they were busted at the local IHOP for getting pancakes. And now what happened here is a very interesting series of events because it raises a lot of questions about the integrity of this local jail as well as the skill of these criminals. The mom, while coming to visit her son, she had talked to him on the phone on the way to jail. She'd been pulled over by the police on the way to visit her son in jail. And in doing so, they got her phone number and they were able to track her using her phone from that series of events. The man told his mom on a recorded line at, at jail his plot to have her break them out and they easily tracked them down to IHOP. And of course, the true reason they were so easily found is because in the guy's jail cell, they found a to-do list. And for you now, we have an exclusive caption of this to-do list. It says, one, call mom, two, break out of jail, and three, IHOP pancakes. 
I mean, come on, man. This also raises questions about why he can't line up writing in the center of the paper, too. That's also... I, I don't know what's going on there. Amanda, help us out. What is the holiness lesson from this one? I, I don't know. This may not be, not the holiness lesson, but maybe how to be betterly depraved. Uh, don't stop for pancakes. No. Uh, holiness lesson, maybe be more aware of your surroundings uh, for for the those running that jail um, and, and trying to, it, it is funny. He talked on a secure line that he had to have known was being recorded because all those things are, most of them are when they come out of jail cells. So I don't even know. I just, just be more aware, I guess, is the lesson to be learned. Yes, one should definitely be aware. Um, anyways, moving on. Evidently in the UK, there's not enough snacks to eat. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on over there because in the UK, there is a new company out. Um, it sounds like Salisbury, but Sansbury is a company that has a new line of snacks out. They've got a variety of 100 different different choices of edible insects and they come in all sorts of different flavors but they have these barbecue crickets that people are, are eating and things of this nature and we just want to know would you be willing to eat edible crickets instead of us spending too much time describing this product to you we think you can probably guess what it would be like to eat bugs but we thought we would share with you a couple of the reviews that happened there one lady says i bought these for my hubby and he said they didn't taste at all like barbecue but he could taste fish sauce. So, I don't know, guys. What do y'all think? The whoa, insects... Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't hear this beforehand. I knew the whole, it didn't taste like barbecue, but it tasted like fish fish sauce. That is so random. Where does that come from? There's going to be some weird things for your brain to process. You're eating something coming out of a chip bag that's actually a cricket that's supposed to taste like barbecue, but it tastes like fish. There, there's just way too many different things going on. Please send us your thoughts. Um, where do you draw the line at eating insects? Is it that they don't actually taste like a barbecue like you hoped for? Or maybe it's because they did taste like fish? Or the last thing that this lady said is they were too expensive. They were um, pound 50, which comes out to almost $2 in American, if, you, if you're wondering. Yeah, I, I don't know about this. Amanda, is there a holiness lesson to eating bugs? Um, I think something that's interesting, a major push of this um, company is the fact that it's supposed to be more um, economical and environmentally fr friendly. And I think that's definitely something we all should look at, how we can um, better take care of the world around us. But it does seem interesting. This is um, being marketed to London or to the UK, which obviously um, is not having. And like most parts of the world, especially in first world countries, it's not so much is there enough food, but how we distribute it. And so I think the lesson to be learned from here is not so much go out and buy uh, crickets to eat, but um, how we can better um, help one another in our environment by probably looking at how we can better resource um, those around us. Well, you know, I look at this and, you know, people, they always like holiness by the law. They, they try to emulate different biblical characters. They might be like, hey, John the Baptist eating locust, maybe. Is there any holiness pathway there is there any you know <laughs> holiness by the law that sort of logic system found in eating crickets oh no um though we should always try to emulate the saints who have gone before us and obviously also emulate christ um eating crickets is not um one of those ways i think the more important thing he was doing was preparing the way for the lord yes. i think if he was just eating crickets that that didn't make him uh, uh yes the prophet that came so yes yeah. it wasn't the crickets or the camel hair or living out in the desert um as some of us are prone to want to just escape it all but no it is preparing for for christ 
Yes, and send us your thoughts. Is this satire or is it real? No one can tell anymore. No one can tell. We'll be back for a serious conversation. We have a special guest with us today. Uh, you've seen her there at the introduction of the program, uh, Pastor Rachel Sorensen. And she's going to talk with us a little bit about some of the revelations she's had about theology and monarch butterflies and her research involving them. We'll be back with that here in a moment. exciting feature of our program today, we have a special guest with us, Pastor Rachel Sorensen, who comes from a much colder part of the United States, from Iowa. And Rachel has some experience as a graduate doing research with, or a graduate student doing research with monarch butterflies. And I know here at Kingdom of the Logos, we have things like Charlie the Church History Dog and his friend Luna coming to share things with us like creation. We also have the undead remains of the Church History Porpoise, which of course was the mummified porpoise found off of the coast of France on the island Chapel Hue. And today we're going to be learning about monarch butterflies a little bit because Rachel, as I understand, you were working with these butterflies and you had a bit of a revelation that happened to you. Rachel, would you share with us what you learned about theology from seeing butterflies cling to a paintbrush. Okay, so when butterflies just hatch, so the caterpillars just hatch for monarch butterflies, they have to be put on milkweed leaves because milkweed leaves are the only things that they will eat. And so what you do is you have to take a paintbrush, and these are the paintbrushes that you have as a child that you use to paint, and then you paint the walls, and your mom or dad get very mad at, gets very mad at you and says, hey, don't paint the walls. Those are the paintbrushes we use. So as I was moving one caterpillar after the next to all these different milkweed leaves, I thought about, I kept thinking about God and how God puts us in situations where we know that it's going to be better. God knows it's going to be better for us, whether we might grow more spiritually or mentally or physically, but we're too scared. So we start clinging to the past or we cling to sin and we're afraid to embrace the new. So that was one of the things that monarch butterflies taught me about God. Yeah, they're clinging to a paintbrush the same way people might cling to something like sin. Yeah. Which I actually like the use of the language sin. A lot of times people are afraid of such strong and vigorous concepts, but no, it, it is something really interesting. I know we opened up our program with a bit of a monologue, if we could call that. It was also a bit of a, a parody, but it leads us into serious conversation about the idea of leaving the mass of caterpillars to find the single caterpillar, which is a bit of a play on Matthew 18. Um, Rachel, would you mind sharing that scripture with us and also talking a bit about how that relates to what you were telling with us earlier? So the parable that the scripture refers to is the parable of the lost sheep. So it goes a little bit like this. What do you think? If a human has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, do, not, do they not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that has went astray? And if they find it, truly, I say to you, they rejoice over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Again, that's Matthew 18, 12 through 14. So when I was working with caterpillars, there was a time where they kept escaping out of these cups because we had to put them in cups in order to feed them this artificial diet. And as they kept escaping, I, have, I kept trying to find them. So one day I had about 99 caterpillars and one of them went escaped 
and I looked around the, the incubator room where we had them, so a really warm room. I looked around, couldn't find it, looked around again and again. And then finally, I found this caterpillar. And I was so excited that I found the caterpillar because I knew what happened to it. This reminded me of this parable, and it reminded me, oh, it showed me just how much God could possibly love us. If I'm looking all over this place for this caterpillar that I don't have a relationship with, besides taking care of it, how much more can God care about us? Yeah, and that is really interesting. Again, so many times we look at nature around and... We find so many revelations that come to us. Again, we've talked about a character from church history named Isidore of Seville, who wrote a lot of encyclopedias, looked at the world around and said, when we pray, we talk to God, but when we read, God talks to us. And this was this idea that God teaches us many things when we are just people who are willing to observe the world around us. When we want to actually be people of observant minds and we listen to the world around us, we see the world around us, we're having feedback from the world around us, there's a lot of things that we can learn. And we can learn a lot of things about the character and nature of God as we do that. And that really is interesting. Rachel, I know you also were talking about the prodigal caterpillar. I know I look around and I see so many prodigal things that I wish would come back to me. Um, What is the deal with this prodigal caterpillar? So the prodigal caterpillar reminded me of the story of the prodigal son. One day, again, these caterpillars, one of the caterpillars escaped. And I looked for it, went away and took a test, came back, still looked for it. Finally, felt like I was going to give up because I couldn't find this caterpillar. Looked prayed about it, said, God, I need to find this caterpillar. It's part of my research. Finally found the caterpillar clinging to the wall, which kind of, I think, is a metaphor for the pig pens in the prodigal son story. So I took the caterpillar off the wall, and I ran up to the lab, very excited and rejoicing that I found this lost caterpillar that had come home. So then I fed it with a fatted milkweed milkweed leaf, which reminded me of the entire story of the prodigal son, where the son goes out on a journey, spends all of his inheritance, and then goes and eats at a pig pen, the slop. He eats the slop at a pig pen and then eventually comes home. And when he comes home, the father rejoices that his son has come back. And sometimes we need an escaped caterpillar to remind us of really the sentiment of that story. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for sharing us your, not only your, an insight into what you do um, in terms of graduate research, but also giving us some real-world examples where we can see these parables come to light and we can see a couple of theological items really take on the world around us. So thanks for coming. And I encourage you as you go throughout your day, if you see anything that reminds you of a parable, write it down. You never know. It might help someone else. And one other point. Rachel actually has some wonderful pictures of some of these caterpillars and butterflies. We're going to be posting them to our Instagram page. So if you follow Instagram, check out those and you will see the the monarch butterflies and caterpillars there. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for joining us, Pastor Rachel. So that was a wonderful conversation we had with uh, Pastor Rachel Sorson and her theological um, inspirations with the monarch butterflies. Uh, So right now we're going to move into a conversation about the Eucharist and Holy Communion. And so Anthony is going to give us some questions. 
Why the language of body and blood? What is the deal with sacrifice? All right, so this is something which is quite interesting. If you go back to the early church, one of the things which people would accuse the early church of was cannibalism. And it sounds really nasty, it sounds really gross, and it was a total misrepresentation of what the church was doing. They seen that people were taking and they were having the Eucharist, they were doing things to celebrate Jesus going to the cross, even though it's a morbid thing to celebrate. It's something which is tragic and yet it is sort of miraculous at the same time. There's a great wonder to the fact that we would have salvation, that death could be overcome, but yet there's this horrific tragedy that is also coupled there. And so when you see the language of Eucharist, which is if you break that down, you get kara, and you get you. You get a lot of different things in Greek. Most of them have the idea of good and joy. It's a thing of thanksgiving. But yet, it also has this language of body and blood. It sounds also quite nasty and morbid. But the language comes from the fact that Jesus really did make a sacrifice. In the second temple period of Judaism, and I know that sounds like something someone would throw out there and you have no idea what that means necessarily, but the 500-year period leading up to the time of Jesus, the people of God, they understood, if you wanted to come to God, you needed to make a sacrifice. That's how you got to have personal time with God is basically how that worked. If you wanted to have some communion with God, and when we say communion like fellowship, if you wanted to fellowship and sort of be close to God, you would do this activity of making a sacrifice. And of course, the more valuable the sacrifice, the closer you could get to God is sort of how people understood things. If someone went out in the wilderness and found a random animal and gave that as a sacrifice, well, that's, you know, it's, you're not giving up anything which you worked hard for. You go back to the story of Cain and Abel. Cain goes and he gathers, you know, fruits from the world. And these are things which God initiated their existence. He didn't really work hard to have those things where his brother actually brings in livestock that he's raised. There's this idea that if you were giving something from your own herd, if something that was the firstborn, something really valuable, that could bring you closer to God. Well, Jesus goes to the cross being the ultimate sacrifice. He is God's begotten son. And what could be a greater sacrifice than God sending his own son? And it really was one sacrifice to put them all to the rest. I don't know, Amanda, can anyone top that sacrifice? No. <laughs> no, you, you can't talk, top the sacrifice of God sending his son to die on a cross. And so this language of body and blood really is reminding us that there was an actual sacrifice here, there. Yes, it is morbid, but also we should have joy and thanksgiving in knowing that we now can have a personal relationship with, with God. And I think something to also, as we're talking about sacrifice, Christ's death on the cross, and really as we, we look back into the history of um, the people of God, even the animal sacrifices were not arbitrary. Um, because I think if we make the sacrifice arbitrary, either we make God kind of a bloodthirsty uh a vampire wanting blood, craving blood, or we make this out to be like a long con with God, the Father, and the Son in it together to win people over. But what we see is the sacrifice is actually quite necessary. Um, just think about when you sit down for a meal and you eat, if you eat meat, um, something had to die so you could have nourishment. It's a very practical way of looking at the world. And so when we come to sacrifices, uh, the people of God would come to the temple, they would sacrifice their animal, and though there were sometimes a total burnt offering where the animal was completely consumed by fire and wasn't eaten, most of the time those sacrifices were eaten by the priest, by the priest's family, 
because uh, in Jewish tradition, the priests could marry, they had children, and it passed on from father to son. And often the people who gave the sacrifice also participated in this meal. And so when Pastor Dylan talks about communing with God, you also communed with the rest of the people of God. And so when Christ comes to die for our sins, again, it's not arbitrary. It's not because there was some kind of cosm uh, cosmic law that demanded blood, demanded sacrifice, or that God just decided, huh, blood sounds like a good idea for a sacrifice. It was actually that there had to be someone who could conquer death. And death could only be conquered if someone had, had died. And so we see this imagery in the death of Christ, even that he descends into the abode of the dead. But even the abode of the dead could not hold him. Um, and so this is fantastic. It's a real sacrifice. It's not just something that was kind of created for theological reasons, but it actually had to happen, and it actually happened so that we can have a real relationship with God. Very good. What is the next point, Anthony? Quote, this do in remembrance of me. All right, here we have a statement we find on many uh, communion table throughout the world. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this? This what it, it bugs me, and it's bugged me since I was a little kid, actually, because I would notice this on a lot of tables. And some have it carved into the woodwork of the table. Some ha have some churches just have a plain table, so they have a tablecloth that goes over it that says this phrase. And it, why why does it say this do instead of do this? I don't know. I actually cannot find a rational reason for it. Um, but at some point in our tradition, I, I guess this was common. But more to it, it is uh, a call to take this very seriously. And as Pastor Dylan mentioned before, it is something that's very somber, but also something very joyous. But it is calling us back to the reason of our faith, the reason of our salvation. And it's nothing, it, it should never be something we forget or take lightly. Um, it is, no matter if you take communion every Sunday or once a quarter or twice a year, that regardless of how many times you take it, it always should become something that's so special and so important because it is in that moment that you are experiencing, you are remembering, and you are experiencing uh, the death, but also the resurrection of our God. And as I respond to this, this point that we have here, the language of remembrance, a lot of time is something that sometimes we do overlook because our world teaches us that whenever we want to make a pilgrimage, it's always this looking deep within yourself, this journey to the center of the self instead of looking outside of ourselves. And really, Communion is about looking to Christ, and it's not just about looking through our own life history. A lot of times people want to focus on where they're at in terms of their life. Are they living as much as Christ calls them to do? Whether or not that's a good thing to be thinking about, but also one should really be oriented towards Christ in this moment. Anthony? Is communion just a time of soul-searching and sin-purging? All right, and this is why I didn't go too deep into that last statement because I knew what um, the next point was going to be. A lot of times people, they do have, I'm not going to say they have a misunderstanding of communion as much as they may not have a fully comprehensive, they don't have a, a wide and holistic understanding of why one would go to participate in the sacrament. A lot of times people look at it and they say, well... It's kind of one of those things which is weird. Am I a church member or not? Is there any sin in my life? And again, they, they spend a lot of time looking at themselves and examining their own life instead of looking at the great work that Christ did and the great sacrifice Christ made when he comes down and goes to the cross. And people in that moment, sometimes things can get a bit chaotic. People can start to get a little uneasy. And 
they get distracted from the main purpose of it. Amanda, what are your thoughts on this? So traditionally, there's three parts to um, communion. And some denominations and traditions may do it differently. They may have these kind of three parts in different orders. But mostly, there's kind of there's a movement. And that is, one, that there is a call to look at self for there to be repentance and reconciliation. There is a time to pray, to invite God's presence to be made known in through the elements of communion. And then there's the time for remembrance in which a lot of times, this is probably the part most people are familiar, it's when the pastor goes, and now on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he took the bread and he broke it, he took the cup and he blessed it and said, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood poured out for you. And so we see in this that there is a time for reflection. However, it's only one part of a continual movement that we look at God, we look at ourselves, we proclaim the difference. But we also confess that as much as sometimes we have failed to live up to who God has called us to be, God has also given us the power and the strength to be a holy people and to do better next time. And I think the great takeaway from this is just to, to tie all these different aspects of communion together, um, to not just parse it out and say, well, we really like this aspect of it and we're going to reject the others, but really to, to take it as a, a whole. Anthony? And last but not least, transubstantiation. Ah, yes, the issue of transubstantiation. That is a big word. And what that word basically means is there are some outlooks on the world which consider when you eat the whatever it is, whether it be the unleavened bread or styrofoam of your choice. Uh, I, I should be a little bit more um, serious about that, though a lot of people do kind of think it tastes like styrofoam. Whenever you're eating the that which represents the body and then you're drinking that which represents the blood, there are people who think it actually turns into bone, flesh, and literal blood. Though I haven't really figured out why this is such a necessary thing for people. There are a lot of people who will say, well, nowhere in Scripture does it say it doesn't do that, but also nowhere in Scripture does it say that it explicitly has a crazy transformation into something. It's, it's one of those things where it, I don't see what it adds to communion, it literally being blood and bone and flesh, because the meaning is not found in the material. The meaning is found in the sacrifice that Christ actually made when he went to the cross. There was that one moment which was good enough. We don't need the communion materials to be a certain thing in order for that opportunity for salvation to be there. Jesus did that. That's really the whole point of him going to the cross is that there would be one sacrifice which would cover everyone. And again, in the church of Nazarene, we are not people who ascribe to transubstantiation. And Amanda? So, right. And so um, going back to what I said earlier about kind of the three movements uh, within Eucharist or Holy Communion, talking about that prayer of invocation, um, there's a fancy name for it that has completely left my mind right now. But um, it is this idea that we do invite God's presence into the elements and into the practice itself. And But we never go so far as to believing that it is literal body and blood. And, and the, I think for the Nazarenes and those of similar um, persuasion and theological lines, the importance is that the cracker and the juice, because we don't use um, wine, we, we, we use uh, grape juice, um, have to be taken more seriously than simply a snack. But at no time do we also say that, like Pastor Dylan said, what does this add to it? Other than, I think people are, understand that there is a mystery that takes place in communion. Um, it is a means of grace by which we participate in God's grace, and we don't know exactly how that works out. So sometimes we try to come up with these odd little things to help explain it. But I think it's good to just kind of confess sometimes we don't know why. Uh, we don't know how uh, grace works all the time, but we do know it works and it does call us to participate in that grace. All right, and we're going to end that conversation there. Stick around though, because we're going to play Hot Not or Sanctified after the break. 
welcome back and now we're going to play hot not or sanctified and we're going to be doing this with a list that Ansley has selected for us again Anthony does not always author these lists though he may author some in the future and how this basically works is we examine something and decide whether or not it is a positive theological inspiration or not if we say hot that means we like it if we say not it means we don't if we say sanctified only God's judgment can decide whether or not this thing is good and Anthony what will we be discussing today so today, I have found the list from CBN, Christian Broadcasting Network, 13 Steps to Forgiving the Unforgivable. All right, and we will say, Pastor Amanda and myself, we have not seen this list before. This is always a completely hot take, and again, we don't edit these things or anything <laughs> like that. We, we try to be um, live when we can, when the technology agrees to it, so this is a completely hot take. So... Step number one, according to CBN. Understand that forgiveness is not just justifying, understanding, or explaining why the person acted toward you as he or she did. Let me, can you say that one more time? <laughs> I heard that and it kind of threw me for a loop. Okay. So, understand that forgiveness is not justifying, understanding, or explaining why the person acted toward you as he or she did. And to give a little bit more context, this list is sort of 13 steps for the process of forgiving someone So these are not things which are separate from one another. So, so we have to start with understanding what forgiveness is, is kind of the first step. Yeah. Or more of what it is not. If, if, ju if, if you're not always going to have answers for why people do things. So this idea that you can only forgive if you have an understanding, I would say that is, is bad. If there is some, but there are times and places where we should find understanding. I mean, we have minds. We're to have our minds transformed. The idea that we would shirk reason and rationality is, is ridiculous, and we need to be observant and wise about the world. But if that's their starting point, Amanda, what are you thinking? Well, I think the starting point is that we that forgiveness is not understanding. Like, you don't yeah. have to understand the motive in order to forgive. Um, which if I guess is hot. And I think it's also really, I think talking to a lot of people who don't quite understand forgiveness, um, that sometimes we we think that in order to forgive somebody, we have to almost like allow there to be no consequences for the person's action, yeah. which is not, again, which is not forgiveness. So I yeah. think this is actually a nice place to start. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go with hot, but also kind of see where this goes. Yeah. Tentative you, hot. You, you sold me on being a tentative hot as well. Again, because sometimes you can't figure out people's motives. Sometimes people do awful things, and there's never an explanation for why they do them. So, okay. There's a couple other details there, like, um, you know, forgetting and denial are not forgiveness. So that's in there as well. That's but cool. step number two, understand that it is often unwise to forgive face-to-face. -face. This tends to make the other person feel put down and make you look holier than thou. Oh, saying, I was good until that last part. I'm just saying not. Because I was thinking, yeah, like, it, I think sometimes it is good. I think sometimes people do things that are accidental, and so we have to forgive them, even if they don't understand. Like, you know, some people, like, they need you to shake their hand at church, and sometimes you just don't because you don't mean bad of it. And so they might have to forgive you, but it may be more awkward for them to come and to say, hey, I forgive you about this. So in those instances, maybe not a face-to-face -face forgiveness is necessary. But I don't think you should ever shirk away from 
there being real reconciliation because you're afraid of the way it will make you look. Yeah, that's the thing. I feel like this is accommodating a byproduct than it's actually dealing with because, like, sometimes things are awkward, so you can just write off that whole thing. Like, no, our, our world has gotten really passive, and we've lost the critical social skills to do things which are uncomfortable. I, I'm going to say not to that. Yeah. Realistically... There's probably no blanket answer to how a forgiveness scenario is going to go down. Sometimes it's not possible to do things face-to-face. -face. Sometimes it may not be appropriate, but other times it's totally appropriate to do that. So, no, not. Yeah, yeah I totally agree. They got really uh, needlessly specific with that one. Uh, number three, select a time and place when you can be alone for a season of time. Now, see, it was going in a direction that I liked. And then I didn't like how it went on. I do actually like how being, they're being specific because I can actually work with this. I'm going to say not to this one as well. Not that I don't like that as a general principle, but I don't think it's something unique to forgiveness. And I feel like if this is an order of things going towards forgiveness, I don't know that I would have that place there. So. I'm... And I think sometimes forgiveness can be something that needs to take place within a community that you need people to support you and encourage you towards the right steps. And although personal times of reflection and quietness is definitely necessary, I don't think it's always necessary in the sense of to reach reconciliation in certain aspects. I think sometimes being alone can often make you feel separate away from people and therefore reconciliation can't happen. Um, so, I, again, not a bad tip, but I don't think it's necessary. Yeah, if we're going for a 13-step plan, I'm just not quite yeah, sure. Yeah, and another thing is we live in a world where people are like, oh, well, you need to debrief after this. Look, there's a whole variety of people and personalities on the spectrum of human behavior. Some people don't need that yeah. the way that other people do. And let's just be honest. And the church needs to, to realize that if, you, if we keep structuring church for a specific personality type, you're telling other people that it's more of a, a coping mechanism than it is of something that has eternal and unfallible quality. So, no, not. Next. <laughs> Number four. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bring your mind, to bring to your mind all the people you need to forgive and the events you need to forgive them for. I feel like that could be a dangerous uh, recipe. You know, I'm actually fine with it. And the reason I'm fine with it is because this is moving towards the Holy Spirit conviction. They did kind of outline details on what their expectations of the Holy Spirit are, but I think just the general premise of saying, I feel like I need to, to do forgiveness, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit convict me in the movement of, of forgiveness, I, I actually like that. Yeah, but I can also see, like, Anthony, to your point, there, there is something odd about it in the sense of, because the list starts out almost as if there's a problem, like a specific problem, and this is the 13 steps of how to reach forgiveness with a specific problem in mind. So why, if you're dealing with one specific thing, would you kind of open up to, I don't know, that's weird to me, but no, I, I mean, it definitely is good. I'm not saying it's bad to ask the Holy Spirit to convict you. That's that's a great thing. And it may be in searching for the one specific problem you find solutions to, to several problems, but yeah, I, I don't know. I I don't want to waste my one sanctified on this one, but um. I'll, I'll go with hot, but it's it's weird how they phrase that. I think that's how I'll do that. For me, it's just strange because I feel like you might end up hunting for things that need to be forgiven. Mm. And normally they could have just been like, you know, instant, like, let's just say instantaneously forgiven. Like, you know, just yeah. like totally fell off right off your shoulder. But um, I feel like that could kind of make that complicated. Uh, step number five. Make a list of everything the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, even if it seems trivial to you. 
Do not rush through this step. Allow the Holy Spirit all the time he needs to speak to you. I, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say, this sounds like what I do when I'm preparing sermons and reading and things. Just write a list of the points I want to come back to. I don't think that's bad. I'd say hot to that. I don't think it's bad, but I, 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 I personally dislike tips like this because to me it also sounds like prayer journaling, and, and I loathe journaling. Um, and so it doesn't. And it's also like a coping mechanism they talk about um, in, in counseling that when you get have problems, like write out a letter to the person you're mad at and then, you know, burn the letter. And I'm like, well, for me, it's just like, just think about it, comprehend it, move on. But you know, that's that's my personality. So I'm, I think it's a good direction, but you use the medium that works for you, you know, I guess is my response. You sold me on saying not to this. <laughs> if this was a list of, of tips, not like mandatory steps, I would say... I would have stuck with my original hot, but yeah, I think, yeah. Cause sometimes that's not a useful tool to people. And when you force people to use a tool that's not useful to them, then they feel like something's missing. Um, yeah. And it, because it emphasized, do not rush through this point. I'm like, but what am I doing? Like, so again, if it works for you, yeah, use it. It's a great absolutely. tip. It's a great tip. Yeah. It's a great tip, but I don't think it's necessary. And if you don't do it, don't ever feel like you have missed out on truly forgiving somebody. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think that's where we'll leave that one. Yeah. They definitely should have went with um, trying to uh, define the nature of forgiveness. But you guys are going to love this next step. This next step is awesome. Number six, take two chairs and arrange them facing each other. Seat yourself in one of the chairs. All right. And I'll just go ahead and go through. I'm, uh, you don't have to say seven. anything on this. If it opens up with with two chairs, the answer is no. No. And again, this may be a good coping mechanism for people. Yeah. Um, and you may find that at times it is helpful. I've heard people talk about um, that cannot forgive, that had an issue happen in their life. They finally come to a place that they want to forgive that person, but the person has passed on. And so they talk about talking to a picture, talking to a gravestone, talking to an urn. Um, so I think it is necessary at times to do these kinds of things that may seem silly or weird. But again, the medium is secondary um, to wanting to move to a place of yeah. wholeness. And yeah. so I don't, and also I hate acting things out too. Um, so um, this one's going to get a knot. And me. how in the world do they have this in the same list where they say, you can't do it in person? It's like, what? what? <laughs> but you have to practice as if you're doing it in person? I just don't You understand. can't do the real thing in person. The real thing cannot have some some gravity and grit to it, but the practice can, maybe. maybe. I, I don't think the two-chair activity is, is always necessarily. Who knows? All right. What's the next one? I think it's way out there, but... Uh, step number. This is why I wanted to go ahead and read oh, okay, step number seven. Is because th- step number seven is, imagine the first person on your list, blah blah, sitting in the chair. Uh, don't hold back the tears or emotions. I think we can go ahead and move on to yep. step number eight. Uh, yep. <laughs> Choose by an act of your will to forgive that person once and for all time. You may not like. You may not feel like being forgiving. That's all right. Just do it. And the feelings will follow. God will take care of that. Do not doubt what you have done is real and valid. So a couple of things to this point. I think this is actually a very great point to be made in the sense of we've talked about this before when we um, read a story uh, written by Corey Ten Boone, who was persecuted because she helped Jews during uh, the German occupation. Um, and she talked about that. She knew she had to forgive, but she didn't feel it. And so I think that's important for us to understand, but the, I don't like the language of forgiving once and for all, because also as we understand human psychology and how we deal with grief, 
is often when we interact with a person who has harmed us in the past, we immediately feel again that pain. Even if we've truly forgiven them in the past, sometimes we have to re-forgive. That doesn't mean we didn't forgive them once and for all um, in the past, but it does mean that that trauma sometimes does come back and we have to re-deal with it. And so I think they're, they're a little too, I don't know it's what the like- word is, dogmatic in their language, where we have to leave room for grace, even for ourselves. I'm going to say it's once saved, always saved theology meets forgiveness. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So not. Well, oh gosh, but I, I like the end of that sentence. Um, I'm going to use my sanctified on this one. All right. She's going to use sanctified. Um, and I think we were both not on seven, the one before this. Yeah. Everybody's not on seven. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to say not to because it, it's not like a... a we should not put ourselves in the idolatrous place and say that we get to control everything that goes on in the world. There are times where you may need to actually forgive people again because something new may happen. Mm-hmm. So there's not like once saved, always saved. I have I have gone to the cross and been the reincarnation of Jesus. We are not. Um, there is a healthy understanding that salvation comes from Christ and his forgiveness. Again, the sacrifice he made, we talked about this earlier with communion, it was Better than any sacrifice anybody else can make. Nobody's going to one-up that. And people may do things bad again, and we need may need to come back to that. And likewise, even when we mess up before God, we may need to reconfess sins to God and and go have that conversation and, and come to Jesus and talk about things with backsliding or something has taken place. Here's my issue with number eight, and it's got to do with what it says about the nature of forgiveness. Because, all right, at first it starts out and it says, you know, do it even if your feelings aren't necessarily aligned. But then it encourages and follows up by saying, because the Holy Spirit's going to take care of the feelings. Yeah. And so I don't like how it's sort of implying that. At some point there has to be a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's and not everybody you know, feelings is... don't necessarily, they're not necessary for forgiveness. And you can live as you have forgiven. And that could be better than if you had all the right feelings and then don't live as though you could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not everybody is equally emotional. And somehow we've tried to vilify people who aren't highly emotional. And that's silly. All right, next next one. What are we at? Nine. Uh, number nine. Release the person from the debt you feel is owed for the offense. Say, you are forgiven and free. Except switched. You are free and forgiven. I'm all right with that. Yeah, I think it's good. And again, this is not saying that they're free of the consequences of their actions. Um, They still have to have some sort of recompense. Um, But in forgiveness, and I think this is odd that we've kind of, this list has decided to tell you what forgiveness is not, but it hasn't quite defined forgiveness yet. But basically, forgiveness is not releasing someone. It's just saying, I no longer am responsible for making you pay for the harm you've done. I'm giving that up to a higher authority. And that higher authority, of course, is God. Um, so I think that's an important clarification, but I think this is a good statement. All right. I say hi. Step number 10. If the person is still part of your life, now is a good time to accept the individual without wanting to change aspects of their personality or behavior. No. I think, yes, we can all say big yeah. capital letters N-O-T. No. Yeah. Now, again, just because you forgive them doesn't mean you let a toxic or abusive person back into your life. You can... If they are going to behave right, but you do not have to tolerate, you do not and have this, to tolerate bad behavior. There's a um, a meme that I, I put up on our Instagram program this or Instagram profile this week where, and it's not one that we made. We make almost all the memes that we have, but this one was not. And it was a, I don't remember who said it. I think it was hashtag things Jesus never said or something like that. And Jesus is 
with um, the lady that they're about to stone, they're trying to stone, and it says, Jesus came up to the adulterous woman and said, go and sin no more. And he's like, unless you just want to stay like you are, because that's cool too, because I'm, I'm down with anything. It's basically the idea of it. And this idea that, well, if you're in sin and you don't want to get out of sin, Jesus will be fine with that. No, there is an actual call to go and sin no more, to be transformed into holiness. You see this with all the people Jesus interacts with as they come. There is transformation that takes place, and there is a need for transformation. Again, holiness is a real thing. This is the idea that you can kind of bring the gospel into your life and remake the gospel in the image of however you want it instead of actually be transformed towards holiness. And just again, one more time, um, if you have found yourself in a place of transformation and you are moving out of bad situations and bad circle of, of, of people, um, and you, you, the people around you are not being transformed or not allowing transformation to happen, it's okay to leave that. To leave that situation and to find a better community, a better place in which you can continue to be a healthy and whole person. All right. Anthony. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. Step number 11, and uh, we probably won't go into 12 and 13 because these are prayers and they're kind of long. Okay. Um, but step number 11 is... Thank the Lord for using each person as a tool in your life to deepen your insight into his grace and confirming you to the image of his son. I can Conforming smell you to the image of his son. Sorry the about predestination that. in this one. <laughs> I also, I'm wondering like, okay, they're, they're, okay, a good thing in this phrase, if we're to take it, I think if I'm to like translate it into Wesleyanism, is the idea that um, God has given us a community to help us and to encourage us. And so in that sense of thanking God for people around us, that's good. But I feel like where they're going is to thank God for the people who hurt us because it makes us stronger. Right. And that's just such awful theology. Again, so we talked about grief last week. God does not cause suffering. God does not look on the earth and says, hmm, I need to refine them through fire. So I'm going to cause them to have pain in their life so they can learn a lesson. No, 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 and no. So what God does is God allows for free will. Pain and suffering happens because of free will and also because we just live in a chaotic world. And God can use that to encourage us and strengthen us and to teach us. But he does not. He does not. He does not cause it. So do not thank God for something that is not God's fault. Yeah. And again, creation is fallen. But you hear this and you're like, if this was translated through Wesleyan theology, I could probably be all right with it. But right now, as it stands, the ideas are not originating from Wesleyan theology. They're quite clearly coming from some sort of idea of, of predestination. Therefore, it, it deems it not. I think probably the only two parts of that that any of us would probably like is thanking God and uh, conforming to the image of Christ. Yeah, Both those of those are good. are good. Those are good. Everything in between, not so much. All right. All right. Well, we will end that there. I hope you enjoyed our program. If you would like to send us your pitchforks, please do. <laughs> Um, yes, we know that there are people who are going to be asterisks, especially after we, we started off with our, our new intro segment. We've got a new branding for that, Unholiness Today. So we look at the weird and unusual things of the world, but we do move people from depravity towards sanctification. So that is good. That is good. Anyways, send us your, your thoughts, questions, and comments. Again, you can find our free podcast to download and take with you on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all sorts of different RSS feeds out there. If you would like to subscribe on YouTube and click the bell, that would help us out so much. In the same on Facebook at facebook.com slash kingdom of the logos. And if you would like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. And with that, God love you and have a blessed day.